to welcome those of you who are brand new. We want to welcome those of you who are watching online, or let's say you're on vacation and you're coming back and you miss your church family. We wanted to say hello, and obviously it's great being here with our CCV family. I want to start by asking this question. Why did God put you on this planet? What's your purpose in life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I believe that uh, these series of messages that we're going to look at today and next week and the following week, we'll look back 20 years from now and there'll be some of the most profound shifts will take place as a result of these messages, both personally and as a church. Now, I just want to say that we know that in our gatherings, there are three very different types of people here. And that's okay. We, we expect it to be very three very, very different kind. And I'm not talking about football fans. Like, there are the Cowboys fans that we prefer. <laughs> where, where did that, someone, you know, there, there, are, there are three levels of spiritual maturity, okay? So if you look up here on, on the um, slide, we know that there are people at the 101 level. There are, those of you who are here, roughly about 20% of our congregation that gathers every single weekend, or simply we're welcoming people that are just exploring Christianity at your own pace, and we love it that you're here, and part of why we exist is to, to help uh, facilitate those kinds of conversations, and uh, we're glad you're here. The second level would be the 201 level. This would be the largest group of people. Roughly, we estimate roughly 70% of our people. These are people that have been uh, converted to Christianity at our church. These are new converts that in the last five years you were baptized. And then there are people that we would say in, that are in the 301 level, and these are people that are or should be by this point in their spiritual journey making disciples of other people. And these will be roughly around 10% of the people in the room. Unapologetically, our services are designed to be at the 101 level and the 201 level. And the reason for that is the people that are to be disciple makers, you don't make disciple makers in lectures in large groups. It's impossible. You can't do that. Um, they're done in one-on-one -on -one conversations and smaller forums. And so by design... We don't speak at the 301 level in this meeting that often. Today, we're going to break with that. So I just want to tell you that I am speaking uh, for the rest of my time to people who are at that 301 level who should be there or are there right now, specifically. Now, for those of you who are new, for those of you who are growing as a disciple of Jesus, you're going to get a lot out of this. But I am specifically speaking right now to the people who are at that 301 level. And what I want to do is I'm going to start out by, saying, by, by sharing three stories, okay? The first story is this. Um, in uh, September 26th of 1777, 1,500 British and German troops were diverted from um, in, uh, an area in, um, uh, where they were pursuing in... Uh, upstate New York, and they diverted and they came to Philadelphia, actually against orders. They redirected their troops to come to Philadelphia under British General William Howe, and they believed that if they went and sacked Philadelphia, it would strike a blow to the morale of the patriots who were, who were um, engaged in essentially 
an insurrection against the crown. And so they came to the outskirts of Philadelphia. George Washington and his band of patriots attempted to stop Howe at the Battle of Brandywine. They were simply outnumbered. And I want you to listen to how Sarah Fisher, the wife of a prominent Philadelphia merchant, described what happened the moment that Howe and his troops came into Center City, Philadelphia. Wagons rattling, horses galloping, women running, children crying, delegates flying, and altogether the greatest consternation, fright, and terror that can be imagined. What do you think it would have been like that day as the British came to town? Historians tell us 10% of Philadelphians just left their homes. Loyalists lined the streets and cheered for the British troops who were going to expunge from their presence these turncoats against the crown. Quickly, things turned very, very bad for people that lived here in Philadelphia. One Quaker woman by the name of Elizabeth Dinker wrote, If things don't change ere long, we shall be in poor plight. Everything scarce and dear, and nothing suffered to be brought in to us. Historians tell us food shortages, rampant abuse at the hands of soldiers, that colonists were forced to quarter in their homes were contrasted by the lackadaisical way that British soldiers for that year period of time arranged dinner parties and social gatherings. In fact, British officers put on plays at the Southwark Theater on Monday nights from January to May, performing at least 14 different plays, all the while rubbing it into the eyes of the colonists. Elizabeth Dinker expressed what everyone was feeling at the time, how insensitive to these people appear while our land is so greatly desolated and death and sore destruction has overtaken and impedes over so many. It's the first story. Here's the second story. Happened right out here. In our lobby, very good friend of mine, dear, dear man that I love so deeply, came up to me and asked me this question. He said, quote, can we meet? Because, quote, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. I can't figure out what God wants me to do. And I share that because I've had that conversation. Those exact words have been shared with me dozens of times in the last decade. Essentially, I don't know what I should do with my life. And this is someone who's like, listen, I'm sold out to God I'm in it, I like I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. Here's my issue. I put my finger on why this question keeps getting asked. And it's that people who are Christians in our culture and even in our church are under the assumption that there are two separate callings in life. There is the church stuff calling, which meant if I really want to do something... What is there for me? Like if I'm completely sold out, like a follower of Jesus in the first century, what I'm supposed to do is uh, ten services, be a better person, give money, serve occasionally, and get my friends involved. And then these same Christians will say, I want to do something else. And then our culture will give them a whole host of suggestions on how they can go out and discover that. Some of them quite ridiculous and stupid. Like, do something that scares you. 
or make a difference, or follow your bliss, or give back to your community, or leave the world a better place. These are the suggestions that are given to Christians who feel like God is calling them to do something extra besides the Jesus stuff. Now, what was frustrating in that conversation, and the conversation dozens of times, is it should be obvious it's right under your nose what God is calling you to do. But it wasn't obvious for a reason, which I'll share in a second. Let me tell you a third story. The third story has to do with me. Three, four months ago or so, I got the idea that I should start writing out my prayers. Now, I don't want to give you the indication that I haven't prayed before, but, and I don't know why it didn't occur to me as a writer, why I should write out my prayers, but I have never in my life written out my prayers. And so I just said, okay, well, what I'm going to do, because I'm a pretty concrete person, is I'm going to create a Microsoft Word document, okay, and I'm going to create a little checklist for me. And uh, the checklist essentially goes like this. It's nothing real earth-shattering or anything, but it was, I, I will pull out a Word document, and I will copy and paste this, and then I will put the date, and I will simply, for this day, then I'll put the date on this day, Sunday morning, right? Um, I will read and reflect on one chapter from the Bible. I'll do that when I'm eating my breakfast, my little eggs and strawberries and stuff. Uh, and then the very next thing is, I will pray the Lord's Prayer, Right? Everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, right? Where am I? Where am I? Former Catholic people who were like, yes, we got that nailed. The Our Father, we got it nailed. We got it nailed, right? So I will pray the Lord's Prayer because that's what Jesus tells us to pray. And then I will literally write out the answer to, I'm thankful because yesterday, Jesus, you answered my prayers by. And I literally will type it out. This is the way I saw you answer my prayers. And then I will type out, I'm thankful because you gave me this insight into your word. And I will just journal this. And then I will pray, please intervene. And I will list every person in my family and what I'm praying for, people on our staff, people in our church, different issues and stuff like that. And then finally I'll get to me and I'll say, here's where I personally need the greatest help personally and as a husband and as a dad, as a leader of a staff, as a teacher, as a, on and on and on. Can I tell you what happened as a result of this? Number one, it might shock you, God actually started answering my prayers. Not that he didn't answer my prayers before, but I didn't realize it because I would pray for something and then forget about it. But then I would wake up the next morning and I would say, God, here's how you answered my prayer from yesterday. And I would write it out and I'm like, oh my goodness. And then God would answer another prayer, another prayer, another prayer, intervene in someone's life. I'm talking very profound things that, I don't know why it didn't occur to me to do this before, but it just never occurred to me. Peter Kraft, theologian, said this, I strongly suspect that if we saw all the difference even the tiniest of our prayers make, and all the people those little prayers were destined to affect, and all the consequences of those prayers down through the centuries, we would be so paralyzed with awe at the power of prayer that we would be unable to get up off of our knees for the rest of our lives. Here's the second thing. I discovered that I can't wait to be with God in the morning. Sounds kind of weird, like you would expect that as a pastor, like that you would expect that, but that was not the case always. 
But I can't wait. Like literally, David says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? I get up in the morning and I can't wait to spend time with God. Like it started at 4 and then it went to 3.50 and then 3.45 and then 3.30 and then 3.20 and then 3.15. And when I got up at 2.55, God's like, bro, seriously enough. I don't want to talk to you that much, all right? But it's like I wake up and I'm like, I want to, as Paul said, Paul had a coworker. Uh, his name was Epaphras. And he talked about how pa- Epaphras was on, always wrestling in prayer, wrestling in intercession for people. And the privilege to be able to get to do that and to see the results, Peter Kraft is right. It's like, I'm, I'm like an hour will go by. Sometimes two hours will go by. Why am I sharing that? Why do I share those three stories? Here's why. In my time with God, I've spent countless weeks now in the Gospel of Matthew, in just the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and I've spent just, I can't tell you how many weeks just meditating and pouring on this one chapter. And it occurred to me, the reason even our most committed Christians at CCV are wondering what God wants them to do is because I have failed, you to, te- I've failed to teach you that the Jesus movement is an insurrection movement to take back lives from the evil one. And that God is calling you to join his insurrection. And Jesus' ministry was an insurrection against the kingdom of darkness. And the boredom that you feel is because of what Elton Trueblood said. Great Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood said, Many have refused to join the church, not because the church has demanded too much, but because it has demanded too little. Their criticism is not that the church is too different from the world, but that it is too much like the world. The humiliating truth is that no Christian fellowship has ever truly challenged them. And so I want you to think about this for a second. You're in the shoes of a patriot under occupation in Philadelphia. Do you really think that there is a patriot that asked, you know, I'm really wondering what I should do with my life. Why? Everyone knows what their goal is. To overthrow the king. Why? Because the king is a tyrant that has plundered our seas and ravaged our coasts and burnt our towns and destroyed the lives of our people. Therefore, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're going to die to see this guy gone. We're going to kick this guy out of our land. We're going to take this place back. And that's what the Jesus movement was. So we're calling this series, Welcome to the Resistance. That's what we're talking about today. Next week, we're going to talk about the rejecting the shadow calling of work. Final week, we're going to talk about rejecting the shadow calling of family. Look on the verse. Matthew chapter 1 begins this way. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then it says the tempter came to him. And then in verse 8, it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this he will give, I will give you. See all these people? All of these buildings, all these empires, all these political systems. 
I will give every bit of it to you if you will bow down and worship me. You'll be my right-hand guy. What you're thinking about doing, Jesus, you don't need to do. Because I'll make, you'll just be submissive to me and I'll make you my guy. You don't have to do what you think you need to do. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then it says in verse 11, the devil left him. And then in verse 12, the very next verse, Jesus said, screw you, Satan. I am not going to follow you. I'm going to overthrow you. And it says that he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. So there are two basic strategies of Jesus' insurrection. Number one, I want you to notice that Jesus intentionally moved to where people trapped by the power of Satan actually lived. Look on the screen with me. This verse in verse 12, where he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum, is a, it's just a basic map. He, he boyhood home in Nazareth, and then he walks eh, about nine hours away, a day or two walk through the, through the little mountains, down up into this little seaside town of Capernaum. And you're thinking, did you need to make new friends when you got there? You know, it was a day away. But why, why did he go to this little town? Now, Jesus was a Jew. If he was going to lead a movement to take over the world, where would you go if you were a Jew? Help me out, people. Where would you go? You'd go to Jerusalem. Why? That's where the temple was. The priests were. That's where the Jews were. Capernaum was in an area called Galilee. One scholar estimates that half of the people that lived in Galilee were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. People were Jews, didn't like Gentiles because they considered them icky. They were icky. Uh, Gentiles were people that didn't circumcise their boys, and they ate pork. Sweet sour pork, mushu pork, I mean all kinds of pork, right? We hate these people. They detested them. But Jesus, when he realizes that I am not going to bow to Satan, I'm going to overthrow Satan, who is now occupying this world, starting back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, this whole movement culminates in this point, he moves to Capernaum for a reason. And that's because that's where people who were suffering under the occupation of Satan that's where they were hurting the most. I want you to notice this phrase in Matthew. It says, he quotes, Matthew quotes Isaiah, that this is in fulfillment to have Scripture in Isaiah, and it says, the people living in darkness, referring to people in that area, have seen a great light, Jesus. Those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned for these people. Shadow of death, that's an interesting phrase. Very first time we went to Nairobi, Kenya, we're going through the slums. I go off on my own. I'm just taking pictures and talking to people and rubbing shoulders and other people with other people. I just realize, oh my gosh, I'm here by myself. This is a little, little dangerous. And so I'm walking through the slums and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to someone and I look down and I'm like, why is that guy sleeping on the road? And then I saw his distended belly and the flies coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's not taking a nap. He's dead. And I don't know if I was more freaked out by the fact that he was dead 
or that there were people who were just walking by as if it was nothing. And that's the description here. When Jesus goes to Capernaum, everybody looks great. Everybody's fine. Everybody's happy and everything's normal, just like in our area. But behind the scenes, when you peel the cover back, you notice how much pain people are actually in. You notice the pain in marriages and the brokenness and the deliverance that people need, how lost people actually are. And then you realize there is a reason Jesus went to the people that Christians are scared of hanging around the most. How many of you became Christians? Don't raise your hand. And you immediately loved the fact that now you had a new family. There were other Christian friends that you could go hang out with. And in some ways, you were like kind of ashamed of like stuff that you used to do and that sort of thing. You're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to yield to those temptations. I'm going to find other Christian people who are going to hold me accountable, and we're going to be together, we're going to grow. Because your former life, how you used to be, and you're like, now I have these new friends. And Jesus is like, hold on, you time out. The reason I saved you is, yes, now you need to be in community to strength, be strengthened and grow. But you need to go back to those people. Who is it that is in the shadow of death that when you peel the layer off, who is it that you really connect with but that is really hurting and broken right now? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a group of people, it's kind of weird, business owners and CEOs of companies, smaller companies, small startups of companies. I, I will... I will go into a, a business, and then I'll just hunt down the owner, and we'll start up a conversation. Within 10 minutes, I'm asking him about the stress of this and that and this and that. 20 minutes into it, he's like talking about how difficult it is. About 25 minutes into it, he's like, wait a minute, who are you? You know? And all it is is I have like a similar kind of background to you, but I know beneath the success and the money and the exterior of you having everything together, if I go and pull the curtain back, there's a whole lot of pain going on in your life. Now, that's Jesus' first strategy, is he goes to the people who are broken. His second strategy is something everybody knows because we've read it and we've seen it in the Bible a lot. Jesus chose 12 people to be with him for three years to learn from him how to fish for people who are currently under Satan's power like they used to be. In other words, Jesus' whole entire strategy for getting the world back, for changing eternity, was to get people like you and me in a group for three years. Train us and then send us out to replicate the process. That was the strategy. Now, does anyone not understand what that means? Go find people who are broken, who are without hope, who are living in darkness. Call these people to come follow you. Live together in community for for three years. Pour into these people and ask them to replicate the process. Everyone in this room understands that. Don't raise your hand, but my question for you is, for those of you who are at the 301 level, 
How many of you are actually doing that? Because the people who live at the 301 level have contented themselves with a mediocre version of Christianity. That is simply, I come to a service, I give a little money, I serve a little bit, and then I yearn to do some other calling because I don't know what Jesus has called me to do. This is what Jesus has called you to do. Can I give you an example of something? So, well, I have the principal uh, in a um, school district that has um, a, a population that is mixed socioeconomically, and there are children that will come into the school, it's an elementary school, that um, comes from some very difficult circumstances. We're talking first graders. Not a year goes by where I'm thinking to myself as I'm hearing the stories of this young, challenged boy that is, is facing very, very difficult circumstances. If only there was a Christian man who would be willing to go to this first grade boy who's starting out light years behind the average kid in this area and take this first grade boy and maybe about three or four others and put together a group where I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be your rock, your presence, your mentor over the next three years. Can you imagine what would happen in the lives of those five young boys? Can you imagine? Does anyone doubt that that would change the trajectory of their lives? There are some of you who were great moms when your kids were small. Like, seriously, you were just a great mom. Not that you're not a great mom now, but there are so many young mothers who that if you took six, seven, eight of those and you put them in a group and you poured yourself into those young moms over a period of three years... Forget what happens to the mom. What do you think would happen to the kids of that that mother because of your investment of time? Do a little math with me for a second. One person grabs 12 people and invests in 12 people like Jesus did for three years. And then over the next 30 years, does that just 10 times. Okay? 120 people, right, go through this process of discipleship over three decades. 120 people. The point of this, however, is not for you to do this just with these people, but for them to repeat it. Question. You do this, 12 people, for three years. Over the next 30 years, that's 120 people. They go and grab 12 people for three years for 30 years of their lives. How many people we're talking about have been changed for the kingdom? Over 14,000 people. That's why Jesus, when he talked about the kingdom, is like a little mustard seed that is so small, but eventually it blows up like this massive tree. But we content ourselves with settling for going to services throwing a little money in the plate. And then when we're challenged by something like this, when Jesus is challenging us, 
We're like, you don't understand. I golf three times a week in a league. Trust me, there's not a person in this room that is good enough as a golfer. Or you need to be golfing three times a week. Nothing against golf, but Jesus goes and he challenges, walks up to James and John, walks up to Simon and his brother Andrew, and he says, I want you to come follow me. And it says immediately that they left their nets. What does that mean? They left their nets. Goes to James and John, I want you to follow me. And it says they left their boats and their father. What does that mean? That means they were like, well, Dad, we're not doing the family business, which was security. Wait a minute. This is a, this, you're set up for this job. Some of you have gone through this. I've talked to you about this. You're like, I just don't know if I want to go into the family business. Yeah, this thing's set right up for you. And that's what happened with James and John. The call to discipleship is the call to say that whatever is most important to me right now, I am willing to say no to that so that I can spend the rest of my life making disciples. That doesn't mean you become a full-time pastor. That just simply means that as a teacher, as a doctor, as an engineer, as a lawyer, you are going to spend minimum 30 years of your life pouring into people, and it's going to replicate across the world. Here's the thing. Satan is trying to stop you from doing this. Satan is trying to keep you content simply going to church services and going home. How do I know that? Because Jesus taught on this specifically. Matthew chapter 13 tells this story. A farmer went out to sow a seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell along rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples are like, listen, we have ears to hear, but we have no idea what you're talking about. He was like, let me explain. When anyone hears the message, he said, I'm talking about the process of helping people become disciples. Whenever anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed fallen on rocky soil refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble and persecution come because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed fallen among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed fallen on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. In other words, when someone becomes a disciple of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the expectation of Jesus, is that over your life, you would produce 160 or 30 other disciples of Jesus. Why won't people in this room do that? One of three answers. Number one, maybe you don't understand that this is your mission in life. My bad. 
Maybe you just don't understand. Number two, there are some people who are like, I've never had anybody disciple me. Like, I couldn't find the New Testament from the Old Testament. Don't ask me to help someone understand Jesus in the Bible. I never had someone disciple me. How am I supposed to do that? Or three, quite possibly, you do have the ability to do that, but you've become ineffective in following Jesus because of making money or you're worrying over your personal problems that are consuming you. But Jesus said, there will be some who will obey and become disciple makers that help 160 or 30 people become disciple makers themselves. Let me conclude with two things. Number one, this is your life calling. This is your mission in life. There is no secondary mission. This is why Christians who go off and start other callings or they'll start stupid Christian nonprofits out there that just need to go away, they don't realize this is, this is the most important thing you can do with your life. Some of you are, would be amazing mentors of young Christian, or not, of young high school women. And you could take, imagine what would happen if you took from eighth grade all the way until graduation, you gathered together a group of 12 Young women, and you poured your life. Imagine what would happen. And then imagine what if, if when that group graduated, you went and you got another group. And you did that the rest of your life. Can you imagine? And then they duplicated that in their own lives. Can you imagine what would happen? My question to you is, why? if you could do that right now, why wouldn't you do that? What is it that is so important going on in your life that you can't devote three to five hours a week to doing that? Seriously, what is so important right now in your life that is more important than doing what Jesus has called you to do? Hebrews 5.12 says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. I get it for those of you who are like, listen, I'm not ready, but there are some of you. My goodness. There are people in pain going to hell. And you are keeping yourself diverted from the reality of that, doing stupid stuff that doesn't matter. So I'm just praying that God has given you a vision right now. What could I do? How could I, till the day you die, there are some of you that are retired right now. Where you have the greatest amount of wisdom, wisdom, the greatest amount of impact, and you're blowing it on yourself. So number two, If this isn't something that is a life calling for you, you need to repent. Repent is simply an old English word that says, I'm changing my mind. That's it, I'm changing. I am going to address what is staying in the way of this. 
because there are people that need the mentoring. There are people that need this to happen. I will never forget going to Ray and Mary Helen Jones's house in New Carlisle. Lisa and I took, um, we had two at the time? We had two at the time. I remember our oldest, we showed up. They had a big garden in their backyard. And um, Mary Helen asked our oldest, these are carrots. Do you know where you get carrots? My oldest was like, the grocery store. <laughs> no, no. They were great, earthy kind of people. And, uh, but they said, come on over to our house because we're going to teach you. We're, we're not going to teach you. We're gonna, we'd love to pray with you. And I'm thinking, oh, that's very sweet. We're going to have like a little prayer time at, at lunch. And then we're going to be done with that. So then we go and we eat lunch. We had a quick prayer, and I thought, oh, that was it. We're going to have a prayer time. So after lunch, Ray was like, we thought we would go in my office, and then we would pray. I was this young church planner. I had really no idea what he was doing, and he just took me under his wing. And then essentially on this particular day, we went back to his office to pray. So we sit down. He said, well, what we'll do is we'll just go around and pray. So I'll start. I'm like, I've been through this before. So uh, he went, and then Lisa went, and then Mary Helen prayed, and then it got to me, and then I prayed and said, thank you, Jesus, amen. We're done. Lifted up my head. Ray and Mary Helen did not lift up their heads. I'm like, oh, they're going back for seconds. (laughs) Okay, all right, all right, so I'm here. So he starts praying, and then, then they started going out of order. I'm like, this is throwing me off here. You're throwing me off. More importantly, I'm like, how long are we going to do this? An hour? An hour later, we're wrapping up in prayer. I was sitting in the presence of someone who knew Jesus and talk to him like he did. I was in the presence of someone that the Lord walked before. So I begged him, please come on my staff. I, I'm going to hire you with a title. I don't have any money. Can you come? I'm, I'm retired. I was thinking, I was like, I don't care, Ray. I just need you to come and just pastor me. And for three years, I was in the school of prayer of Ray Jones. And it just changed me. Here's what you... Listen, my wife quotes this all the time. No significant learning happens without a significant relationship. And you have so much potential to impact people's lives. Don't waste it on stuff that doesn't matter. Let's pray. God, we repent of our preoccupation with things of this world, things of this culture, we believe that in many ways we have been deceived and led astray. Like a cat with a little toy dangling from a string, we have been led away from the most important task. God, I pray that every single disciple that is here that has been walking with you, you would give them a vision right now in their heart not of their life 
but of generations from now, the lives that could be changed if they followed you. Break their heart. Don't let them sleep. Give them a vision and give them passion for people who are living in the shadow of death, coworkers and neighbors and friends and family members that need someone to say, follow me as I follow Christ, that need someone who's going to be, have a genuine passion and an interest and a concern for them, someone who is genuinely going to invest in them for their own well-being. God, give us this vision. Give us this heart. Give us the heart of Jesus for those who are hurting and those who are lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.